Let's pray. Lord, may the words that come from my mouth make sense because they are inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, I did cheekily joke um, at the start of the service about that friendly interstate rivalry between New South Wales and Queensland, which is friendly except for a particular time of the year. But I did uh, that in part to highlight that we are living in a world that seems to be increasingly becoming more and more about them and us. We see it in every sphere of life, not just on the sporting fields, but in business, in politics, ethnicity, class and social structure, religion, even in relationships. We see a desire to be better than another, to be the right one, to be the one who has God on their side. Well, today's uh, Bible passage flips that all on its head. Those who are the right end up being the wrong. And the obvious response brings a deep challenge to the best of us. Now, I, I do have a public apology to make before I begin uh, my, my uh, sermon uh, this morning. Uh, Dr. Graham Lear, who preached fabulously last week uh, on the parable of the prodigal son, said there's only two passages I want to preach on Luke this year, and the prodigal son was one of them. And as I was uh, completing my sermon, I thought, I'll go back and see what um, Graham wrote in his Lenten Reflections, which have been really great, about this passage and at the top of um, his reflection, he said, this is my favourite passage in the Bible. I thought, oh, no. That was the other passage he wanted to preach on. So apologies to Graham. But he, if you go back and have a look at that, um, uh, that amazing reflection, you get some really solid understanding of the context of what's going on in this scene. In the lead-up, Jesus has been making a name for himself. There's been a number of very high-profile and public healings. He's had a number of profound public teaching opportunities. He's been also walking a very fine line and crossing over it a number of times in upsetting and unsettling the establishment. I mean, Jesus was no shrinking violet. The passage that we've just heard is just before Jesus has his first confrontation with the powers that be over the observance of the Sabbath, which was so much part of the identity of the Jewish people. Today's Bible passage sees Jesus being invited for a meal by one of the establishment, a Pharisee who we find out has a name, and it's Simon. Now, it could have been a friendly candlelit dinner for two, but more likely it was more of a public buffet, if you like, 
in the open courtyard of, of this uh, Jewish uh, man's house, who, being a Pharisee, was probably fairly wealthy and has invited other people, probably other Pharisees and scribes and other members of the establishment, to share in this meal together. And at the centre, we find Jesus. Amongst all the respectable people of that community, all there to discuss important matters, or more likely to put Jesus under the microscope, or even more likely to put him back in his place by trapping and embarrassing him. Into this gathering comes a woman. And she certainly interrupts the genteel gathering that she sees before her. Firstly, by her presence. She is, as it clearly sets out in Luke's Gospel, a sinner. She does not belong. Now, we don't know the precise nature of the sin. Church tradition suggests that she may have been a prostitute. She could have been uh, Mary Magdalene. She could have even been Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who pours expensive perfume on Jesus in John's Gospel. Now, she may well have been each one of, or all of those things and people. But nothing in Luke's gospel leads us with any certainty to these conclusions. The only thing that we know for sure that she is labelled a sinner. There were certainly many things a first century woman could do to be given that label. We know by the murmuring around them and the comments that Simon makes that people are aware of this label that she bears, sinner. In that culture, sin, until it was properly atoned for, would exclude a person. And a number of sins would exclude a person from eating with others, particularly holy people like Pharisees. If you were ritually unclean, you could only be made clean by the proper atonement. And, of course, Simon was perfectly well-placed as a Pharisee to know exactly what this woman may or may not have done to atone for her sins. It's quite likely that Simon viewed this woman as beyond atonement. The disturbance escalates from her presence to her behaviour. She lavishes attention on Jesus. She stands behind him weeping, cleaning his feet with her tears and drying it with her hair and then covering his feet with expensive ointment. 
Now, in any culture, even today, that would be seen as a very intimate act and quite inappropriate to do in a public setting. Can you imagine somebody walking up to you over at the kitchens and getting down and taking your shoes off? And it would be, it would be confronting. Maybe she's just being bold. But in that culture, at that time, as a woman doing that to a single man, that was just shameless audacity. Jesus has no doubt, though, what her motivation is. This display of extravagant hospitality and extreme devotion Jesus knows exactly where that's coming from. And so he proceeds to tell this very short parable about a man who had a debt of 500 denarii and another one who had a debt of 50. A denarii was about a day's wage for a labourer. But that's really beside the point for this parable because all you really need to know is a basic understanding of mathematics. And Simon knows how to count. He's a Pharisee. And so he answers and supposes that the one who would be more grateful would be the one with the greater debt. Now, the obvious comparison for those around the room, including Simon, would be the woman that is at Jesus' feet. The assumption is she's been forgiven much. Maybe 10 times more than anybody else around that room needed to be forgiven. It explains why she's overcome with gratitude. The kind of gratitude that can only be experienced by somebody who's been given everything. Now, I want to pause for a moment and, and just wrestle with this idea and this question, is forgiveness everything? Forgiveness at its very fundamental basics is essentially the restoration of relationship in releasing any claim on anybody for a past injury or an offence. And it's why this analogy of a debt works so well for Jesus. Forgiveness cancels relational debt and it opens up the possibility of a new future. Forgiveness also gives you back your sense of self. Can you imagine being told in every time somebody sees you, there's that sinner, there's that sinner, there's that sinner. After a while, being in in earshot of, of the whispers that are just loud enough for you to hear them, it gets in your head and it starts to define you. Over and over again, you start to believe that all you are is the sum of your mistakes. It's the sum of what you've done. It's the debt you owe. When you're forgiven, all of those limitations disappear. 
and you're restored. You're renewed and you're set free. Particularly in the culture of Jesus' time, it meant you were excluded, but now you're welcomed back and you are included. So yes, forgiveness is everything. After his conversation with Simon, Jesus turns directly to the woman, saying, your sins are forgiven. Now, we typically read this as being in the present tense, thinking to ourselves, well, this woman has just showed remorse and contrition, and Jesus has forgiven her. But I don't think this is the case in this situation. I think that Jesus has already met this woman, has already heard about or known about her lifestyle, her situation, her sin, confronted her, challenged her, and forgiven her. And now she's demonstrating the extreme gratitude that she has, unable to hold back, unaware or uncaring of what other people might think. Jesus says, again, you are forgiven. Maybe it's just to reassure her and remind her that she's forgiven. But I think more particularly, it's for the benefit of Simon and his friends. They're the ones who have excluded her. After all, if anyone knew whether a woman had made the right atonement in terms of the temple offering, it would be Simon and his mates. This is a powerful story about forgiveness, about the gratitude that forgiveness creates. It's about extravagant acts of love and devotion those that gratitude prompt from a forgiven heart. But it's also about something else. It's about hardness of heart as opposed to love. About judgment instead of forgiveness. It's about a sense of entitlement instead of gratitude. Jesus has explained why the woman was acting the way that she was. But he doesn't stop there. He compares her acts of extravagant gratitude with Simon's inaction. He changes his focus from her devotion to Simon's neglect. Now, Simon being a Pharisee would not have been expected to actually get down on his hands and knees and wash Jesus' feet. He'd have a household staff for that, who would at the entrance have placed a number of jars and cleaning vessels for them to be able to ritually clean themselves and practically clean themselves appropriately before sitting down for a meal. So that causes us to ask the question, why does Jesus still have dirty feet? 
we aren't given the specifics, but I think we can take a fairly well-educated stab at what's happened. I can imagine Simon coming up to Jesus and saying, young man, come with me, I'm going to take you to a meal. And whether he carefully avoids the jars at the door and just brings him straight into the, into the room, or he might even lead him round another entrance. Those homes had multiple entrances away from the formal entry where you needed to be made ritually clean. And sits him in the middle of the room. Around the room are all these important people. Imagine all those gathered from the social pages that you see in the bulletin dressed up appropriately in their nice robes, clean hands and clean feet. The only one in the room with dirty feet is Jesus. This is the ultimate power move by Simon to this young prophet who thinks he's better than everyone else and he's showing up everybody. I will put him in his place by embarrassing him. If we look at Simon's reaction, it's perhaps less about the level of forgiveness he's received and more about that he feels no need for forgiveness at all. In his mind, the woman clearly needs forgiveness. In his mind, this woman's beyond forgiveness. But an upright Pharisee who every time there's an opportunity makes the appropriate atonement and does so publicly so that everybody's aware that he's right with God. They don't need forgiveness. Rather than being taken aback by the extravagant gratitude that this woman shows, Simon judges both her and Jesus. He's a man who has no sense of the need to be forgiven at all. And he's trapped in a judgmental hardness of heart. You know what I've just described? A sin. And it's a pretty big one at that. This story tells the truth, but a truth in two halves. The good bit is that those who recognise their need for forgiveness live out of gratitude and love. But also the not so good bit that those who believe that they're righteous, who believe that they're sufficient in and of themselves, will never know the joy that can be received when you're forgiven. And you can live out of genuine love and gratitude. A few years ago, that we had a theme for the year Living Forgiven, where we challenged uh, you who were part of our church then to imagine what it would be like if we actually lived like we were actually forgiven. On um, Wednesday, I sat in a, an important room at All Saints Anglican School with important people, including Mother Anne and Mary Anne and the Archbishop and all the school principals. And we were challenged to think about how could we make the Anglican Church more compelling? Well, 
I think it's a fairly simple answer. If we are to live like we've actually been forgiven, I don't know anything that's more compelling. If we are able to demonstrate our love for Jesus and the aroma of Jesus, I don't know anything more compelling than that. We have two main characters in this story. For one, forgiveness is a sheer blessing, something that's beautiful, so important that it breaks her heart. And all she can do is express her gratitude because she knows that she needs this forgiveness. The other character, Simon, who's pretty sure that he doesn't need forgiveness. He's righteous, he obeys the law, he does what he should, he he pays the right sacrifice at the right time for the right atonement. Not only does he not need forgiveness, but the very mention that he might, he finds offensive. It's a great story, isn't it? Is it any wonder that Graham wanted to preach about it? It's brilliant. But it's one thing to explore the power of the themes in Scripture and realise how profound they are. But it's another thing to recognise that this is a story that's actually at work as we are reading it. Here's the thing. We're all fairly intuitive people. It doesn't take too much thinking to work out that Simon's the bad guy. The one, he's the judgmental one. He should be on his knees asking forgiveness from Jesus for his hard-heartedness. And so we quite naturally find ourselves judging Simon. Then all of a sudden, bam, we realise we're like Simon with the same judgmental reaction. We judge others to take attention off ourselves, of our own actions or inactions. And what I've described as a hardness of heart is actually, if you want to get down to it, just another way of saying sin. Once we've realised this, then we've got a choice. Who are we? Are we sinners like the woman or are we sinners like Simon? Do we embrace our identity as broken people, accept our forgiveness and lavish extravagant gratitude on the world, on God, on Jesus, anybody we can find? Or do we reject, deflect, or ignore our failings? Which will it be? Who will we focus on, them or us? When we're confronted in the media or in public by examples of things like gender discrimination, racism, or other extreme examples of bias. Often we can be so shocked by 
the behaviour of another person, that in our internal and external monologue we say words like, how could they? But when we read this passage and we realise the power of it in confronting ourselves about our own behaviour, are we shocked at the same level? Asking ourselves, how could we? I include myself in this assessment, but I don't see many examples in the world in which I'm living of extreme, extravagant gratitude that border on embarrassment. But I can think plenty of, of examples, and plenty of my own examples, where I felt, well, I'm okay, I'm in a good place, I'm sure that message would have been very good for all the other sinners in the room, but I'm okay at the moment. I pray that this passage shocks us into a realisation of our continual need for forgiveness. The amazing grace of God is that it is offered over and over and over and over and over and over again. In the same way the world tells us over and over again, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're wrong, you're hypocrite, you're a hypocrite, you're a loser, you're hopeless. God says through his Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're forgiven, you're set free, you're my child, I love you. And over and over again, if that is our identity, our only response can be this extravagant gratitude. Thank you that you love me. I need to change the way I look at the world. In a week and a bit's time on a Thursday evening, the day before Good Friday, in our church tradition, we gather for a service where the clergy wash the people's feet in a sign that reminds us that this is the way that Jesus sees us. Just before he was crucified, he sat with his disciples and washed their feet. Just imagine what that says to us. with the same extravagant gratitude that this woman lavishes on Jesus, he now lavishes on us. This is how Jesus sees us, how deeply Jesus loves us. My prayer as we approach this amazing story that's contained from Palm Sunday all the way through to Easter Day, that we might realize anew, or maybe for the first time, how powerful this story is. And pray that it shocks us for our lack of extravagant gratitude. But above all, I pray that it brings us closer to Jesus, the forgiver of the unforgiven, the includer of the excluded, the lover of the unlovely, the rescuer of the lost of the them and of the us. I pray that we respond.
with nothing short of extravagant gratitude. Amen. Why don't we stand together and think of that amazing love that Jesus pours out for us on the cross.